0: Hello and welcome to the Law in sport Podcast with me, Sean Cotshaw, the founder and CEO of Law Sports. If you haven't tuned before, the Law in sport Podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and development from the world of sports. Our guest today is Cassandra Helbron. She is an Australian lawyer who's currently working for the government in Saudi Arabia with a focus on sports and mega events. Many of you may know Cassandra from her article for Lawrence in Sport or from Twitter where she's very active posting about her activities, her updates and her opinion on the sports market. In this podcast, Cassandra provides a fascinating insight into how she built her career, but also into Saudi Arabia, her work there, and perspectives on the developments going on in the global sports market. It's a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy it. And remember, if you love what we do, if you enjoy the podcast, then please do tell people about it. You can do that on Twitter, at LaurenSport. You can do it on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. You can listen and share the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Likewise, if there's anything you'd like us to cover, if there's anyone you'd like me to speak to or interview, please let me know. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the LaurenSport Podcast with me, Sean Cotter, the founder and CEO of LaurenSport. I'm joined who is an Australian lawyer and has recently become the regional so the regulation let me start again let me just do, Who has recently become the regulation legal manager sports entertainment and events in Saudi Arabia. Previously, she was a lawyer at the law firm Minta Ellison in Melbourne, and she has a background in working in sports media entertainment, working with uh, players clubs etc. A whole bunch of different things. For those of you that attended our annual conference last year, she was on our fantastic panel, an exceptional panel on commercial negotiations. I say that not to embarrass you, <laughs> uh, because that's the feedback that we got that people loved it and I, and I did turn into. And also, you may have read some of our articles on law and sport if, if you haven't. I very recommend you to do so. So thanks for oh and that's it if you're on Twitter, Lawyer Cass is the handle. So. I've also been in Joe for a number of years now, so you've written for law and sport and you've come to Coventry at other events. Um, do you want to describe a little bit of your background of how you got into sports law initially? And then we can talk about the transition and what your decision was about going to work in Saudi and what your experience has been
1: so far. Sure. So, sports for me, uh, I've been involved since a young age. I played hockey since I was four, um, and I just used to be dropped at the hockey fields and left and then make my own way home, or maybe my parents would have come and collected me. This is, you know, small town Queensland. So, sport has always been an outlet, and that's just what went alongside my academics. Um, I did quite well in in hockey, volleyball, and then I was rowing captain for my college in high school. And, uh, you know, rowing's a pretty big sport in Australia, I guess. The same with yeah. London colleges as well. Uh, but my parents, and particularly my dad, always instilled in me: one injury and you're done you know, sports, you couldn't necessarily make a career of this. And I graduated high school in 2001. And the Hockey, hockey Roos, the Australian's um, female hockey team, they had so many successes. Gold at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Um, I grew up playing with all these girls, but they weren't able to make a career out of it. I was just really lucky that my academics were pretty good. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I was eight when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, which is really odd. Yeah, i It's a mixture of a few things. Um, I can't remember if it was a television show, but I remember I had a really strong influence from a young age from the Kennedys. So Bobby Kennedy being the Attorney General in American politics. And I just loved that idea of being a lawyer. It wasn't I mean, I was eight, I had no idea what being a lawyer meant, but it sounded really good. And if I'm being completely honest, it was my ticket out of Bundaberg. Uh, I always wanted to leave the small town. I always wanted to do something big. I just didn't know where I would end up. And if I look at my career now, a pretty successful career, if I can say that, in sports. So when I was at university, still participated in sports, probably not as much as I wanted to because I had my work and study as well. Uh, but my very first legal job was at a law firm at the Sunshine Coast. And the partner I worked for was president of uh, Rugby League Club. And they were actually, um, they had just been given a license for Q Cup, which is the state competition. So I was involved in changing their incorporated association structure, doing the agreement uh, with the NRL team, which is our Australian uh, football uh, rugby league. Um, federation they were a feeder team so i got to do all of that type of work i was acting for the players in judiciary matters um Public nuisance charges if they got into a bit much trouble after a game on a Saturday night. Uh, then also helping them with personal injury claims against the insurance companies. So I wasn't actually practicing as a sports lawyer. And even if we look at the sports law market now, there is no set sports law practice like property, but all of these types of little matters I was doing across all of these areas of law inadvertently, I would created a sports law practice at age 22. So then when I moved back to Brisbane into a bigger firm, I was positioned so much higher than all these other people and because my business contacts and against uh, the fact that I do a lot of networking and marketing and writing articles just placed me so well to develop what is now called a sports law practice because there was no such thing back in you know 2007, 2008 particularly. In yeah,
0: we talked about previous and the conference on sports law it was very unfashionable, you know, And I was this about you know hat tip to the to, the, to the people before us, you know, who were our real pioneers. Mm-hmm. When, you know, when, when he's getting on the podcast, he talks to Mark James, Professor Mark James sorry, um, at Manchester. He got laughed out when he said he wanted to do research on um, on the field injury, basically uh, in football, and, and basically liability for on the field, um, you yeah, uh, know, on the field conduct. And uh, yeah, they basically called him up to an interview and basically said, oh, "I just wanted to double check that you wanted that this was your area of research." And I remember working in sports in, in international law firms and saying, "Thing, it was not something that people were particularly proud of. They may have acted for a Premier League football club, and they didn't really promote it very much. but was now, obviously, very fashionable and um, yeah, they're more money in it, also, yeah, they the books, so they have to understand the profile and recognition they can gain.
1: That's it. And I say it's sports law is a thing now, and all these partners from past. Years who, as you said, might have acted for a club here and there. But then, when you put it together, the, that client alone can easily be a million dollar a year client. And if we, I guess, put together all the elements of sports law, they've got a practice there. Mm. Then we've also got the partners and people who realise how fun it is because I guess they kind of see the lifestyle I have, and they're like, "Oh, I want to be a sports lawyer." I, oh no, I have a sports law practice, and it's like, "Oh." Well, do you? I actually
0: think yeah, the, the main thing for me is, and I, probably, I think you probably agree with this. I'm not sure if you do, but then you know, tell me? Um, as long as people are honest about where they are in their career and what their experience is, that's all that matters. Like, if you're going to be a fledgling sports lawyer, you know, you've already qualified, you're probably practice, you to deliver, just tell people, like, there's more than enough opportunity out there for you to assist. You know, and you don't have to you know, pretend that you're big time, uh, essentially, when you're not, because it just causes reputation damage for not only you, but for everyone else in the market.
1: And that's it. And Australia, while sports is a multi-billion dollar industry, the sports law market is quite small. So when someone pops up and says, oh, I'm a sports lawyer, and you ask them what they do, they have an interest in sports law. They're not actually actively practicing. But in saying that, I mean, my sports law practice wasn't full time for me. Uh, there's no way in Australia I could have a full time practice because we just don't have the issues that you might see overseas. Um, we've got really, really good player unions and player associations who help the players with their contract negotiations. All the forms are set, so there's limited need for litigation. Um, so while my focus is sports law, it definitely didn't take up 100% of my time. And that's so, is, common, that's yeah. so common. So common.
0: They said. I think people would be more uh, comfortable. I generally find the more established sports lawyers or lawyers acting in sport are very comfortable to to say that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like Mark Cavill. Uh, yeah. You know, Cas arbitrator. Hundreds of times, the Cas case says the same thing. Yeah. You know, was an investor lawyer initially. Mm-hmm. and you know. And supervised Jeff or she was a shipping lawyer. You know, back in the day. Um, yeah, they're very comfortable to say that They don't necessarily do sports all the time. They do other commercial, and that makes perfect sense.
1: Oh, 100%. And it's like students who come to me and they're like, I want to be a sports lawyer. And the first thing I always ask them is, what do you think sports law is? And they're like, oh, you're always at events, you're always going to games. And I was like, oh, well, that's not the practice of law. That's keeping up client relationships. That's the extra
0: bit of work. That's, that's, that's the, not the bulk of the work. That's the, that's the nice bit on top.
1: Yes, it's nice, but it's it's very tiring. And you know, business is done at night time, so my days are quite long. But I need to do that in order to keep up the, the relationships. Uh, and I explained to them though, um, you know, there's torts and negligence. If you want to do the arbitration or judiciary work, we've got criminal law aspects, we've got contracts and commercial, we've got administrative law. It's not. Like, I mean, with the look around your office, you've got sports law textbooks. But that's not like a property law textbook where it's just one or two acts, um, one or two causes of action. Sports can be absolutely anything. Um, so that's why I think there's so much opportunity for these students. Absolutely. Yeah. So,
0: so, obviously, you then moved to Brisbane, I think you were saying then, um, and obviously, you networked and you got that side you clicked that, you know, actually have mm-hmm. a relationship that mattered at young age. Um I think you're saying young age, you part of your, uh, you know, the early stages of your career. Um, and then what happened? Uh,
1: so, when I went to Brisbane, I actually flipped to the other side. So, rather than acting for the players or against the insurance companies, I started acting for the insurance companies and moving more so to the clubs, commercial organisations doing the sponsorship, which I really, really enjoyed. But there's no way I could have done that to the success I did without being. On the other side, to begin with, because I could understand what the players are being told, what they're going through. those little intricacies that you don't have to deal with when you're necessarily on, you know, the, the big yeah. man side. I mean, we talked
0: about this. What say we talked about? It. You talked about it on the panel last year, on the question negotiations panel. That's something that came through uh, quite strongly was the fact of understanding the other person's position, <laughs> the other side's position. And so um, you're suggesting then, so like in front of people, that you're having that appreciation is something you would say was quite valuable to you.
1: Oh, one hundred percent. And when I'm doing negotiations now, I know what they're saying to the other side, and I can use that to my advantage. I know what I can um, recommend in terms of settlements. I know what they're also recommending in terms of ranges, but also what difficulties they have to go through in order to get a sign off on a, an agreement we've just reached. So it's, it's completely worked in my favour. But I'm not certainly saying that's something that you have to go through. A lot of people will just fall into these positions, and,
0: and how did you find managing? You're saying that you weren't doing sport 100% of the time. How did you find? Uh, I imagine the answer is very difficult, right? And very very tiring, tiring. But how did you? Um manage the the, the challenge or trying to service the sports clients, build the profile up where you don't necessarily get the same level of return that you're getting initially anyway from, from clients of the other sectors that you worked in. Mm. How did you manage that?
1: So a lot of the other work I did, I guess, immediately before I left Australia uh, was in corporate risk and governance. Uh, so it, it kind of could feed in a lot to that sports work. That type of work a longstanding clients. We might have been on um, panel arrangements, say with the defence insurance companies. So that was, I guess, a lot easier. That was more maintaining those relationships. But in building up the sports work, it takes so much time. And they always say the time to market is when you're busy, not when you're quiet. So I had to maintain that almost a 24-hour lifestyle. I'm, I don't have children or a partner, so that made it a lot easier for me. If I'm at home at 9.30 at night time, I would get a call saying, come down to this restaurant. We're talking about this deal. It's with International XX. So I'd quickly get changed, go down to Ligon Street and be having dinner by 10.30 p.m. But the next day, I'd have a new client. And a multinational deal that we could, could deal with. So it's a hard balance, and it's not something you can just start and stop. Um, the sports law practice business practice plan we had back at Minters was continually evolving, continually changing, always looking for new aspects. But realizing why we might have why we might have a relationship with a club um, AFL, NRL, and we're doing all that commercial work. We don't want to do, for example, the judiciary work or target that because they brief the QCs directly. But that doesn't mean we're failing. We've identified it and then assessed it as not something that we want to. So
0: some stuff to do with even with doing coaching or business you know, going to law firms or their practices, identifying the areas that you definitely know no go areas, you don't get distracted, right? The is definitely
1: not for me. And it's, it seems like that's quite a sensible approach. Mm. And with the practice building, um, my second degree was. In commerce and politics, so I learned a lot of the marketing techniques and I guess the theory behind it. Organizational psychology, I think, is number one. But they're like, what do you, how do you make a practice plan? And I said, we'll just go back to basic marketing, a SWOT analysis. Yeah, and so. it's amazing. You, you watch this light bulb moment happen. With I've had it with lawyers who are 20 years more experienced than me, and I'm helping them reinvent their practice. It's
0: basic stuff. Right? I'm, I'm not surprised. I was having this conversation with um had a conversation earlier in the week about this, which kind of a lot of individuals. So you, know, what is it, you it was it about the same? What would you choose to do? Firstly, we you know where you trying to get to, and then listed the SWOT analysis. and Best case scenario, worst case scenario, opportunity, threats. scenario where so, yeah, if you're winning, what does it look like? If you're losing, how does it look like? That gives you a 60% more chance of success if you do that. And then what's your strengths and weaknesses? I mean, and it's, it's funny that that, that that you said that as well. It. Somewhere in the between, you know, people's careers or their education that they, they're getting, in practice, it just gets, yeah, you know, gets very really muddy. Really
1: and I think then if people start to bring in the consulting firms, and we've got Gantt charts and all this type of thing coming in, I'm like, well, what's, what's your main name? What yeah. do you want to achieve? And uh, you know, what we do, or what I would do after the SWOT analysis is go through, you know, the current client list or past clients, and then clients that you want. And I make a starting eleven. So you, the, the the eleven you want to focus on, and then I've got the bench, and I've got, which is oh, the, okay. the
0: client. I don't to to this. Maybe Am on the starting eleven. Started, what, what type of client <laughs> am I? Am I the
1: you know, the 11s are usually the ones that we're getting a lot of work from. But I've identified an area, so I might be doing commercial sponsorships, but we're not doing their employment or their industrial relations negotiation. So they're on my starting 11 because that's a low-hanging fruit. They're already a client. I've got the relationship. We can now expand. And then the bench ones, they might be a past client who we're no longer doing work for or a client that we're only getting a couple of files a year. And then I'll have the reserves who basically, I think people would call them the B-list. No contact or limited contact, not actively working with them, no active relationship. So they're the ones I need to spend more time on Developing, so yeah, just a lot of time play, right? That's and, it. And you have
0: to some sort of that's information. It. And that's, so this is like 101. I remember when some, like you have know, get, let's get paid to the law firm and go and talks, and I'll say, yeah, we, like, let's be honest about it. Mark, some of your work coming from existing relationships. that's it, right? And let's be, let's be really clear on that. Now, if you want to grow it, that's fine, but let's be honest about how long it's going to take you, what the returns going
1: to be. Oh, that's it. I had a club back home, and I worked for them, worked rather on them, building a relationship for about 18 months, and it took a while, but I appreciated that because if they turned around and said to me after the first meeting, sure, we want to give you our work. How do I know they've got the loyalty then to me? Um, so after eighteen months, I got the first file, and then after that, there was daily calls. Yeah. Um, we have have a face-to-face catch-up every fortnight because there was just that many issues to deal with because they didn't have in-house counsel. It's so then, so though,
0: in the sense of it's often you hear lawyers say that you know, they, they they want clients who actually want to work with them. If it's it's just, I mean, anyway, so I think it's one of those things. I know there's um, some people uh, that like so I think. Uh, uh, Julian at um, Suffolk who's one of the few personal service lawyers I know that sacked clients. Essentially, he's like, I like, don't want to work with you. Oh, yeah, you're distracting me from all the good clients that I want to work mm-hmm. with." And I think if more lawyers were to do that, I think it'd be quite liberating for them.
1: And I think we're almost doing disservice if you continue to act for a client that perhaps you can't properly service due to capacity, or the relationship is just no longer there, where they're not paying their bills, or they're just not following instructions. That creates. I
0: it's really difficult when you're a associate. So, for example, at a firm where you may not have the authority to make that call, where you've got to the mm-hmm. partner, and the partner's got you know, many other pressures going on, working uh, the bigger firms with other people leaning on them you know, you can see why it gets more complicated. Anyway, so let's get back on track. That's super interesting. But let's get back on track in terms of your your career move. Um, you were then in Melbourne with Minters and um, you're building your international profile. You're also doing a lot in women's sport and women's sport. And I'm not sure you want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, so I was Women Lawyers Association of Queensland president before I moved to Melbourne. I was an internal transfer at Minters. I'm now media past president, but always involved um, with you know, specific coaching for women in legal or women in sport, uh, particularly with a lot of the, I said, the W League uh, football teams or the AFL teams going in and coaching them on life after sport. What can you do now to capitalise on um, a car you're driving around in or even the type of equipment you're using for women, sometimes even the shampoo um, endorsements and things like that. Uh, Never set out to necessarily be an advocate. I'm not necessarily a campaigner, I just do things if I can or if I could assist. And that's just what's happened with women in sport. And I've also had I had an injury myself two years ago playing football. I had my legs snapped in half by the goalie. I played striker. So I also had to deal with and on a much, much less scale than the professionals. But my mindset of well, what I do is I work, I play sport, and I socialise. That's now taken away. I'm spending eight days in hospital. I can't do anything. That, I that, yeah, 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 it's like how do I actually deal with this mentally? And I was fine to begin with because being a type A personality I cut out the fact that I actually had a broken leg and went back to work 36 hours after being discharged from hospital.
0: That's right, that's time. right.
1: But <laughs> what happened a month later was when it really hit, uh, when I actually got back onto the field for the first time it hit me that I've got a bit of metal or a long bit of metal in my leg I've just gone through this horrific injury my, my mind is now reconciling all of this but there was limited support because my injury happened eight months ago I was back playing no one cared yeah. but my whole life had changed my whole mindset and then having to deal with the fact that I might never be as good a soccer player as I was
0: it's you have identity isn't it oh, yeah. I think that's such a big, we had um, Travis um, oh, I hope I get his name right Travis Wilde I think is his name, I apologise if i got it wrong, who's a professional stress who Brendan Schwab had brought to the world players Association of Play Development Conference and did his fantastic analysis on what, what, what causes stress, uh, you know, issues around sleep, issues around like, <laughs> player welfare, and how they, they work with, he works with, like, with banks, with the army, with the military, with various militias around the world. Super interesting guy, he can speak on one of our panels at the conference. And he, we were talking about this in terms of lawyer, lawyers changing careers and how that was actually similar to players changing careers. And he was saying to me, over coffee that that's one of the most stressful events, is like, you know, how you choose to identify. And so if your identification, identification is, I'm, an, I'm a lawyer, I'm a lawyer, I'm a physically active and a player in a team, and suddenly you can't do that. As you said, it's probably less than what well, it's going to be, you think it would be less on an individual basis than a professional player. Okay. But you can quite. Easily see how that can start to get you into a, a downward spiral, right? And you get into a rut.
1: Oh, it was—it was probably the worst year and a half, having to go through, you know, from a mental perspective. But you can't, especially—I wasn't a professional player, so I can't come out and go. I feel like my life is ruined because I can no longer play football. Um, but it also made me realise for my club clients, we need to address a whole other aspect of player welfare. The players know there are the resources, but I think, in my—I guess my personal view—is the clubs needed to be more of a guiding force with that, making sure they see the sports psychologist after an injury, making sure they're thinking about long-term financial issues. But first and foremost, are they okay on a day-to-day basis?
0: Yeah, because can clearly see that it can be, particularly with sports, like the smaller sports, small sport clubs, um, they can easily you just know, take advantage, granted, make assumptions that. So things happening that oh he's got an agent or she's got an agent and they must be looking after that or you know, or they seem fine, they're turning up you know, and asking those deep questions you can easily see um how it falls into that um so then so she got you got involved in all that sort of stuff and I think it's really interesting you said this, you, you know you said you're very busy you're a busy person right you always you always um you know, get stuck in basically and, and taking opportunities as, as they arise and make opportunities you just said type a personality. Then, obviously, we got, uh, uh, we got an email from you saying that you've you, you, you just got a new job, uh, you're moving to Saudi um, to do this new role. Can you just talk for your decision making process about that and then talk about what the reality is like on the ground there?
1: Sure. So, I'd already decided for, by mid 2020, I wanted to be working overseas. I'd practiced my whole life in Australia and I do want to move more to the, I guess, the C suite type roles, um, looking at the COO, CEO type roles for sporting organisations. So, I thought overseas would be the, the best market for that. So, I'd already mentally started thinking about a move. Uh, I had a, actually uh, applied for a job with the Philadelphia 76s. So, even more more so, my mind was, you know, let's get, this, let's get this move happening. And it was in that, when I was going through that process, that I was contacted uh, by telephone uh, about someone with this. Saudi Arabian role. I was about to board a plane back to Melbourne and I just said to them, Look, I don't have time to deal with this. If you're being serious, call me back in an hour and a half because it just sounded absolutely not too good to be true, but just elements that were not believable. Um, and they called me back and I had to apologize for not <laughs> taking them seriously with the first phone call. And they talked through the role and what was happening. And it was working for a government entity for Saudi Arabia as part of their uh, Vision 2030. So looking to open the country up to tourism. Uh, there's not much online about Saudi and what it looks like day to day life. And if I don't forward to actually moving there, it's absolutely amazing. But going back to the decision making process, I thought, well, I've grown up in Australia my whole life. I haven't been exposed to different levels of um, multiculturalism. Um, having grown up in a small Town, then Brisbane, and then moved to Melbourne for a year. So I thought, why not have a go? The first thing I did was Google Saudi Arabian women in business. So I thought, well, let's see what life is like them. Let's find out what they have on their social media. Let's see what they're talking about on Twitter. And I found a couple of women. And then that led to even more and more. I found a couple of expat women who were living there. And then through my business that I own, the Female Speakers Agency, I actually realized a couple of my female speakers are flying there monthly for work. So people just it's happening everywhere. People probably have read somewhere that this person was in Saudi working but they didn't actually click on or necessarily have an interest because they couldn't visit yep. Saudi Arabia. So all of that together I was like, well, this place sounds really exciting. Sure it's 45 degree heat. Um, I'm the biggest beach person in the world. I surf, I skate, you know, moving to a desert that was not appealing. Uh, but the fact that I could be part of the drafting of regulations which is what I'm doing for sports entertainment and events. It's not something that you get to do for any country. Everyone's established. Uh, they've got their regulations. We're starting from scratch. Uh, we're building these regulations for a particular area in Saudi. So why not give it a go? I thought worst case scenario I'll get over there I won't like it. Sure I would have some egg on my face potentially if I had to, you know, leave and go back, but people know my personality. And they know i just do random things all the time but it's been one of the best decisions i've been there for three months now sure it's hot inside it's freezing cold because the air conditioning is so low uh, but the people the culture the experience is absolutely amazing the food and where then, i live and like and
0: everything so, so some people would go yeah you're saying all this and we exactly, talked before we did this and i can sincerely say that that was the, the off the record uh, view that you gave as well like yeah to catch up with friends you know you're really excited about it and uh, you know, one thing that strikes right me so you've very much got a personality where you're looking at this as you said more exposure to different culture and, and, and that sort of experiential uh, how, what's it like in practice, or what would you say to those people who are, who sort of, you know, have questions about it, basically?
1: And I, well, I guess it's like law practice. Everyone kind of thinks they know what's happening, but no one knows what happens behind the scenes. Um, everyone that I've been dealing with, and all the women that I'm working with, the people that I've made friends with, it's amazing. Um, if anything, I think I get a higher level of respect as a female where I'm currently working than where I did in the Australian market with, you know, constantly having to prove yourself, uh, not just be one of the boys to get an invite to a dinner. There's an automatic level of respect, and they want to hear what I have to say. Um, all the, the mannerisms, the, the, it all comes down to respect. Like, that's paramount. And I think that's something the Western world could probably learn from you going back to the basics of immediate respect let's do business if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out rather than i think the western culture is probably
0: a bit more. Yeah, we talked about this with Koichi Yamazaki, Chief um, uh, Chair, Co-Chair, Chair of FIFA no, Asia, um, one of the leading Japanese sports lawyers. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in terms of, you know, he was arguing, uh, or advocating, I was just saying arguing, advocating for, you know, for the Rugby World Cup and for the Tokyo Games. He's, he's basically requested the sports law community was to come with an open mind to Japan, and whilst there's stuff that obviously they could learn from some of the more established practices we've got both here in America and across Europe and more the sports markets, they say, um, come up and might actually might learn something as well about how this uh, is done, how negotiations done. Yeah, you might be opportunities to learn. It's really interesting because I haven't heard that. Um, other aspects as of those we talked about. a close personal friend who uh, who moved there and lives down here. He really, yeah, with his wife and kids, and he really enjoys his it wellness. It's, it's very interesting because again, if you have to be always be careful with just media coverage, you know. One side, often only one side of the story um, that's really cool and so what your day to uh, look like?
1: Um, well I, I think it's probably a lot less stressful than what it was in private practice um, my role is manager so it's overseeing the drafting of the, the regulations so it's just a lot of emails dealing with internal stakeholders and I guess keeping up relationships as you would in any other organisation. Oh,
0: cool! And um, what's, what's what's currently the sports infrastructure like in Saudi? Because obviously we've seen the, the Joshua announcement with the Andy Ruiz behind last week about being you know, there. We've had golf in Saudi. There's the Formula E taking place. There's a lot of as you know, part of their no doubt their, their sports diplomacy or as you know that tour. What's called, that 2030. Vision twenty thirty. Yeah, Vision twenty thirty strategy. Um, trying to attract more mega events is you know gonna be crucial. What what's the infrastructure currently like at the moment there?
1: I haven't had a chance to, to really explore it it. Is yeah, I've only been there a couple of months. I do have a friend that works at Saudi Golf, um, and she uh, is an expat as well. Absolutely loves it. We actually started around the same time. But they're really promoting um, a lot more sporting events and getting international stars in, especially with the Formula E and the boxing. Um, I know they're the country's doing a lot of um, tourism-focused events and actually releasing tourism visas for these ones. Uh, In terms of the infrastructure, uh, slowly meeting more people in the expat community and a lot actually work within various organisations. There's actually a couple of Australian football players who are over there. Uh, Two of the three that I know have actually just left, they've just been traded out, which is disappointing because I was looking forward to getting tickets and (laughs) going to events and and, um, catching up with some more Aussies. Uh, But they love their sport over there. Um, I said to a Saudi friend uh, that I knew one of the the players. I've never seen so much excitement in my life and it's... uh, it's, I mean, sports loved around the world, but this was just another level. Uh, I'm not, I've never been to an EPL match. Sorry, yeah, oh, I in. need to yeah, get yeah, to yeah. one. Yeah. I need to get to one. I imagine it might be the same, but the, the fan experience, the stadium engagement—they just have so much focus on that with the EPL. And I hear that's what it's like over there as oh, well. Amazing. So it sounds like,
0: it's a, well, firstly, congratulations on the new job, and I'm glad it's going really well. It sounds super exciting. No doubt you'll keep us posted on everything that's taking place and, and, and developing. So, what does the sort of next year look like for you? Uh,
1: next year is, I guess, meeting all these project timeframes and and delivering on it. Um, I then, I guess, we'll start to look to the future, where I want to go next. Um, you know, London's given me a few nice days here, and I thought yeah. it was—I was like, wow, this one is pretty incredible. to offend
0: people, but um, you know, balls up in my life, and uh, I think is the best place in the particularly for business, if you're, if you're doing business because of the amount of traffic that comes through. If you haven't been, please do come to London and give me a shower if you're in <laughs> yes. here. But no, it really is a great, great place because of the proximity of everything. Transport's really great and got relatively mild weather. This is about as extreme as it gets at the moment. <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know about mild. I was here, I was here for your conference last yeah. year and that was cold. I had to go by a whole <laughs> new um,
0: Wardrobe for it. Uh, and so, um, and then more broadly then, now that you've like, shifted roles, well, well, now, it's kind of interesting, you can relax a little bit, I guess, like in the sense in this new function. What, what are things that are interesting to you in terms of stuff that outside of your immediate remit at the moment? You're paying attention to in the sort of sport and sports law landscape.
1: Well, it's almost even more time to keep up to date with events. Um, I mean, I use Twitter a lot. Everyone knows that, and I'm you know I'm not saying this because I'm sitting in front of you, but I am heavily reliant on your Twitter feed yeah. um, and that of Lauren sports so I can keep up to date. But now I can go back to actually engaging and having an opinion. And so if you look over the past couple of weeks, my tweets per day have actually gone back to what they used to be. So I feel like I've almost been able to go back to my old self at this time. Uh, one of the things I've been really interested in following is back in Australia, the Sports Integrity Commission development, uh, seeing what's happening there, um, but also worldwide with sports and governance. I think more and more. People are thinking about it now, especially after. I'm not sure the exact document name, but the shareholder letter that came out last week or the week before from the American companies about you know focusing on shareholders and governance and company remits and things like that. So I think the sports law.
0: I think yeah, because I was saying that you know, and I'm pretty much like a parrot. On the basis saying the same thing, right? They go one end of the spectrum, you have to like you know, have to government sorted out. But we we're talking about this yesterday on the on the podcast. I'm not sure sequence is brought about. Probably the last, hopefully the last one for this where we're talking about. You know, it's not agreed worldwide that having non-executive directors. It's Best practice, you think it would be by now, no. to these to account, but it's not right. So, so, even just that concept alone is not agreed worldwide. So, when you start to get into governance, it starts to come like that should be, you'd like, to be quite a, like a one on one to guide good governance. It's not agreed, and then we come down to the other end of the spectrum where you're looking at player welfare, participant, participant welfare, before their crossroads and kids and stuff, they <laughs> should be putting their, their welfare and safety first. Should be the number one priority. if you get those two right, you're, you're probably going to be doing well. Well,
1: oh, yeah, and I think people will seem to forget the number one asset of a club is the player. There's a lot that goes alongside it. We've got the stadiums, we've got fan membership, but if we don't have the players, you don't have a club. So we yeah. need to make sure that's balanced. But you also, and Brendan Schwab's a great speaker, and his brother as well on this issue about good governance and how that trickles down. Some of the best clubs I've worked with who have gone through some pretty horrific times financially, uh, just behind the scenes, the best thing they ever did was keep that from the players. They, they were able to shield it from on-field requirements and deal with the behind the scenes club issues tandem with the success at the club so it's something i think there needs to be more conversation on and now that i have a bit more time on my hands i'm hoping to um contribute that and drive that a bit well, more
0: well that'd be very interesting for you as well because given your role and not some of the people you'll be working with in that role and the you know, international contacts you're going to uh, have more time to, to engage with you probably give a more holistic perspective you know because you'll be down, down around here and everywhere so i really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come when you're over in london and pop into the office this, like a, it's been great to see how you your career is and getting insight into what's going on in Saudi. I think it's really interesting to see how the whole region is developing, particularly with you know, Saudi putting so much into now this, as you say, the sports, tourism and this uh, vision 2030. Hopefully you'll keep us updated and everything and um, yeah, I hope you have a great journey back home or your new home yes. um, and a great time in London while you're
1: here. Fantastic, thank you so much, John.
0: Sadly, that's all we have time for for the show. But remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. And most of all, if you enjoy what we do, if you like the work we push out on LawrencePort.com, if you like the podcast, if you think there's any issues that we should cover, if you'd like to know more, please do tell people. Um, that's how our model works. We don't take any money for content. All of it is um, free from any contribution from anyone, and we're completely independent. Therefore, word of mouth really matters to us. So if you do enjoy it, please do let people know. Other than that, have a great day, evening, morning, uh, depending on where you are in the world and what you're doing. And uh, thanks as always for your support and for tuning in.